welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Today, in the final part of our four-part series with Mr. Joe Renazizi, the former head of diversion control for the DEA, we continue our discussion on how the department got softer on opioid pill diversion cases while the opioid crisis raged on. As we pick up our discussion, Mr. Renazizi talks about the shakeup in leadership that led to his departure from the DEA. A person named Chuck Rosenberg, who had no background in, in, in regulatory control, no background in, in, in pharmaceutical control substances, no, no background in, in, in any of the things we did, and he subsequently uh, basically dismantled the DEA Office of Diversion Control, starting with me. And uh, all of the people were removed that knew anything. The three, the uh, uh, the agent investigator and attorney that were working on these issues as my uh, executive assistants, all three of them were, were tossed aside. Uh, they brought in people that really had no knowledge of what what was going on. They brought in a new deputy assistant administrator to replace me that had, had no background in, in control in uh, pharmaceutical controlled substances, chemicals, clandestine labs, or, or synthetic drugs. And this is what they rolled with. And, and then after the change with, with, uh, uh, AG Holder leaving and, and, uh, this, uh, the new AG coming in Lynch, uh, it, it, the handwriting was on the wall. Everything's changed. And pretty soon, uh, the bill was went through. The bill went through on a unanimous consent vote, where no one really knew what they were voting for, but leadership told them it's non-controversial. Don't worry about. DEA's okay with this, and that's how it got through. It's now clear passage of the Ensuring Patient Access and Effective Drug Enforcement Act was a win for industry. It should be noted the final version of the bill was shaped by a former DEA lawyer, a Mr. D. Lyndon Barber who at the time was an advocate for the drug industry. So at this point, do you sense that there are some misgivings out there in Congress? I wouldn't know. You know what? I don't know what to believe or not believe in Congress anymore. I have total faith in the United States Congress. So, you know, asking me is probably not the right person to ask. Are there misgivings? If there were misgivings, why didn't they change the law back to where it was? Why didn't they repeal the law? How about that? Why don't you ask them that? You know, this is just, this is, this is why I, it's, it's so frustrating when people are dying for United States Congress to take the position it took, and then they're not held accountable for it. Everybody, it's everybody else's fault, but the people who could make a difference, the United States Congress, that that's the problem. The problem is, is that we have a Congress that's more worried about serving the needs of industry than serving the needs of the people they represent. From your perspective, how do we move forward? Moving forward is going to be difficult because the problem has gotten so out of control now that um, you're going to have to make a radical change. 
a radical change in the way we view things, a radical change in the way we view the industry. Um, industries now, their narrative now is, well, don't worry about it. It's not us. Like we said, it's all this bad fentanyl and heroin that's out on the street. Um, heroin and fentanyl are the children of the abuse of pharmaceuticals. You wouldn't have the heroin and fentanyl if you didn't have opioid abuse started with pharmaceuticals and now you have all of this fentanyl and heroin out on the street you know making up for the pharmaceuticals and pretty soon we're just going to convert you know to a point where it's mostly heroin and opioids and the manufacturers are going to get exactly what they wanted they're going to get shielded because now they're going to say see we told you it's heroin and fentanyl but what they neglect to tell you is it started with their their pushing of the of the pharmaceutical opioids out into the marketplace that's what started it and um now it's 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 out of the back and i don't know uh, you you've got to fight it on on multiple fronts now you've got to you've got to maintain industry compliance you've got to ensure that industry is complying in the same token you have to make sure that we're 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 fighting the the, the uh, cartels and the manufacturers overseas that are moving in these fentanyl and fentanyl analogs into the country, um, we have one heck of a problem on our hands, and and we we we've got to take it seriously. And all of these press releases and all of these uh, you know uh, chest pounding speeches on the floor or in front of a microphone by congressmen aren't cutting it. You got to come up with a plan a plan that we're going to be able to, to uh, carry out. And right now, I just don't see it. I just see a bunch of people uh, hooting about uh, a seizure here and a seizure there, and meanwhile, people are dying. Next, I ask Mr. Renazizi for his thoughts on how we move forward as a country to address the opioid epidemic. Demand reduction in teaching, teaching kids at a very early age that these drugs will kill you, you know, and, 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 and making sure that the, the physicians and the pharmacies and the manufacturers and distributors are doing what they're supposed to do to limit the supply out there for people who don't need the drug or who are seeking the drug. And, and, and then an effective enforcement program where we're not hampered by Congress or, or by attorneys who are looking to go to work for some other uh, industry later on and want to be the good guy. As this 2007 clip from a Steve Croft 60 Minutes report reveals, the promise of high-paying lobbying jobs within the pharmaceutical industry has influenced Congress for a very long time. If you've ever wondered why the cost of prescription drugs in the United States are the highest in the world, or why it's illegal to import cheaper drugs from Canada or Mexico, you need look no further than the pharmaceutical lobby and its influence in Washington, D.C., According to a new study by the Center for Public Integrity, congressmen are outnumbered two to one by lobbyists for an industry that spends roughly $100 million a year in campaign contributions and lobbying expenses to protect its profits. And one reason those profits have exceeded Wall Street's expectations is the Medicare prescription drug bill. 
It was passed three and a half years ago, but its effects are still reverberating through the halls of Congress, providing a window into how the lobby works. But it certainly wasn't ugly for the drug lobby, which invested more than $10 million in campaign contributions during the last election and has been a source of lucrative employment opportunities for congressmen when they leave office. Former Senators Dennis DeConcini and Steve Sims and former congressmen like Tom Downey, Vic Fazio, Bill Paxson and former House Minority Leader Robert Michael all registered as lobbyists for the drug industry and worked on the prescription drug bill. Why was the drug lobby so interested in this bill and what did it have to gain? Ron Pollack, the executive director of Families USA, a nonpartisan health care watchdog group, says it all boiled down to a key provision in the legislation. It prohibited Medicare and the federal government from using its vast purchasing power to negotiate lower prices directly from the drug companies. What was the main focus of the, the lobbying effort? Well, the key goal was to make sure there'd be no interference in the drug companies' abilities to charge high prices and to continue to increase those prices. And whose idea was that? There's no question that uh, this was prompted by the pharmaceutical lobby. And it's not just members of Congress who are susceptible to the pharmaceutical industry's influence. It's other governmental agencies as well. Caitlin Esch and Chrissy Clark produced a podcast called The Sentence that helped set off the opioid crisis. It's a fascinating podcast because it frames a key reason why OxyContin became so widely prescribed and led us into the opioid epidemic. At the heart of the FDA's approval of that drug is Dr. Curtis Wright. He led the review of OxyContin, and soon after its approval, he went to work for Purdue Pharma. So when you get a prescription drug at the pharmacy, it comes in a box or a bottle. And maybe you've noticed that you also get this little package insert that comes with it. Often it's this very long folded up piece of paper in very small print with a lot of medical and scientific jargon in it, information about clinical studies, dosing, side effects. Maybe you've tried to read one of these in a prescription you've gotten. Maybe you've given up. They're pretty dense. In the pharmaceutical world, this package insert is referred to as the label. Not to be confused with that little sticker on the bottle that you or I might call the label, but this jargony package insert. And I'm holding in my hands one of these package inserts, one of these labels. It's one you can't find at a pharmacy anymore. The label I'm looking at right now is the original label from 1995 for OxyContin. You know, the painkiller. It's produced by Purdue Pharma. OxyContin was approved by government regulators at the Food and Drug Administration in 1995. And part of that approval process involved approving the words on this label. The label's really long, 21 pages. But on page 15, under the Drug Abuse and Dependence section, there's this one sentence. Delayed absorption, as provided by OxyContin tablets, is believed to reduce the abuse liability of a drug. It's a mouthful, so I'll read it to you again. Delayed absorption, as provided by OxyContin tablets, is believed to reduce the abuse liability of a drug. Remember that sentence. It arguably helped open the floodgates to the opioid epidemic. In plain English, here's what that sentence is saying. That first part about delayed absorption, that just means your body doesn't absorb OxyContin all at once. 
In fact, that's what the content in OxyContin refers to, continuous. There's a time-release mechanism in the pills that doles out the active ingredient, oxycodone, continuously over many hours. So that's the first part of the sentence. And then the sentence goes on to say that because of this delayed absorption, it is believed— believed by whom, the sentence doesn't say, but it is believed that people will be less likely to abuse OxyContin, to take it to get high rather than treat pain. The problem is that sentence turned out to be highly misleading. OxyContin turned out to be highly abusable. And the aftershocks of that sentence, we're still feeling them today. Our question was, how did government regulators let that sentence slip into the label. Who wrote it and why? I would like to talk to you about all of these documents, but I'm going to start with one, this document. It's one that very few people have ever laid eyes on. It was sealed by a court until very recently. This took months of... Took a long time to find. ...trying to find and is kind of amazing that we are looking at it right now. I'm very excited to be holding this in my hands. It's a focus group report that Purdue commissioned in 1995. Okay, it's a focus group report. And the story I'm telling you starts with this focus group report. It's a seminal document. Here, you can take a look. Okay, so I'm looking at this. It says, Focus Group and Research Findings... OxyContin for Non-Cancer Pain Management. So this is market research. It's qualitative research. It's an in-depth study with a small group of people. And in this case, it's about 40 doctors from three different states. And it's not unusual for companies to test out their products on target audiences. I mean, companies do this all the time. And that's what Purdue was doing in March of 1995. They were testing out the attractiveness of their new product, OxyContin, on a couple dozen doctors. So I'm thinking of like Mad Men and, you know, when they would take a product and get consumers and they'd be like, what do you think of this? So this is like that, but for a drug. And it's about how doctors feel about the drug. Right. And these were rheumatologists, surgeons and family doctors. So the kinds of doctors who might see patients other than cancer patients, patients with untreated pain, moderate, possibly chronic pain from conditions like arthritis or pain after surgery, that kind of thing. And this is interesting because, as we've talked about, in the 1990s, there was this movement to treat pain as a fifth vital sign, and opioids were really starting to lose their stigma. So Purdue is testing the waters here. They want to see how receptive doctors will be to this new drug, how likely they'll be to prescribe it for a broader set of patients than in the past. Maybe Purdue sees this as an untapped market and the opportunity to make a lot of money. Maybe Purdue just recognizes there are a lot of patients out there with untreated pain. But either way, this focus group is looking outside of the cancer bucket. right? And so what was the upshot of the focus group? Like, what were their recommendations to Purdue? The focus group report makes it clear that doctors were resistant to the idea of prescribing OxyContin for moderate pain. And that's mainly because they were worried about a couple of things, abuse, addiction, and side effects. Uh, There were multiple recommendations. Stick to severe pain only because none of the doctors in the focus group said they would prescribe a narcotic as strong as OxyContin for moderate pain. And then there's another recommendation. If you could prove this drug had a lower abuse liability, meaning that it's less likely to be abused, if you could prove that, that would help convince doctors to prescribe it for non-cancer pain. I'm just going to read the whole recommendation. It's really short. Finally, we recommend that Purdue implement clinicals with OxyContin among non-cancer patients to determine if there might be any reductions in the side effects that one might get when compared with combination opioids. And clinicals are tests, right? So the focus group is saying do tests. Yes, do tests. 
And then the very next sentence goes on to say, if this type of information were developed, it could be a dramatic finding that has the potential to dramatically impact on the long-term sales volume of OxyContin for treatment of non-cancer pain. If the product was proven to have a lower abuse potential than IR, that's immediate release, oxycodone, it would improve the likelihood of usage for non-cancer pain. So just translate that into English for me. Yeah. So if you can show that this drug has a lower abuse liability, meaning it's less likely to be abused, that'll help sell it. (laughs) Especially that'll help convince doctors to prescribe this drug to patients with pain who don't have cancer. To this untapped market. Exactly. Right. Because otherwise it just seems like doctors are going to be too worried about the consequences, the side effects. Yeah. This is reminiscent of what that FDA toxicologist wanted in 1993. She wanted to test how abusable OxyContin was, and Purdue said, no, we don't need to, and the FDA agreed. And I know it's pretty typical for drug companies to go back and forth with the FDA a bunch of times when they're hammering out a label. So do we know who wrote this sentence? Well, in another court case that uses a lot of these same documents, plaintiffs' lawyers argue that the idea for some statement about delayed absorption, reducing abuse potential, came from Purdue. Uh, Over the course of multiple depositions or sworn testimony, a Purdue official named Robert Reeder says he thinks the suggestion came from the FDA, even though he does acknowledge that it appeared in a draft that Purdue sent to the FDA, so it's unclear. There's a sworn deposition with FDA medical officer Curtis Wright. Wait, who's that guy again? I remember his name. Right. He's the medical review officer who worked on the OxyContin approval process. He testified that he doesn't know who suggested the sentence. He doesn't remember. But he does say, quote, the label makes an extremely weak statement about a class of drugs, end quote. It's interesting because, I mean, that's how regulated sales reps and drug reps are. They're not supposed to go outside of what's in the package insert. So quoting from it is not of strange and meticulous nitpicky thing. It's right. it's common. Right. So a drug rep would know the package insert pretty well right. and be able to point to the parts of it that address a doctor's concerns. Right. And so that sentence really became a sentence that drug reps could point to and say, look, we know you're worried about abuse and addiction. We know that these drugs, you know, are are very strong, but but Delayed absorption, as provided by OxyContin, is believed to reduce the abuse liability of a drug. So like those Percocets and those other drugs that are immediate release, those are the ones you need to be worried about. Not this. Yeah. And look, it's right on the label. Right. And it and according to the FDA. Right. According to the FDA. Even though it's possible that Purdue is the one that wrote it. Enforcement, effective enforcement, you're going to make enemies. It, it, this is not, a, this is an adversarial relationship. Uh, I once was told by a staffer, why can't you guys be more like FDA? And that just struck me because we're regulators. We're not friends of industry. We regulate them. And, you know, I, I, well, how come you're not more friendly like the FDA? Is that yeah, what that well, means? Forgiving like the FDA. Forgiving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, why can I took it as more forgiving. Hmm. Uh, it could be more friendly. It could be more forgiving. But in either case, why can't you be more like FDA? And I was like, are you kidding me? We have people dying. No. What I'm going to be is a regulator. And to be a regulator, it doesn't mean you have to be mean and nasty. But you have to hold people accountable. And if if you can't accept the fact that you're going to be held accountable for for your violations, well, then you probably need to find another profession 
another another job, another another industry where it's going to be more conducive to, to this friendly atmosphere. But there's nothing friendly about people dying. As Mr. Renazizi points out, there are no laws requiring evidence to back up the claims pharmaceutical company speakers make in their talks at symposiums. First of all, there's, there's a lot of legal issues with, with, with that, a lot of speech issues and what doctors can and can't say. And, uh, but I think that for this to work, you have to have some kind of evidence. If you're going to go out and speak to clinicians about uh, a method that, you know, when it comes to controlled substances anyway, uh, about, about things, you should have evidence, scientific evidence to back that up. And I think the problem is, is we were very free and loose with the information maybe categorizing it as evidence when it really wasn't evidence, categorizing it as scientific uh, studies, which really isn't scientific studies, not accepted scientific studies. And I think what we need to do is monitor what drug industry, what drug companies and drug entities could, could say uh, in, in that domain of, of uh, practicing physicians, prescribers, I think that that speech needs to be regulated. And believe me, I'm a free speech advocate. I, I love free speech. But uh, when, when speech affects how patients treated and when speech affects how people could be harmed, you know, for that treatment, because prescribers have changed the way they do things because they went to a, uh, uh, a symposium and heard a quote-unquote expert telling them, well, this is what the studies are now finding, and, and this is why you need to, to, uh, to change your prescribing habits. The people should be held accountable for that. And I got to tell you, uh, if, if there's a way to stop that, to stop the information flow that could be harmful, then, then you're going to impact. It's, it's going to have a major impact on, on uh, public health and safety. Um, so that's what I would do. I would figure a way to control that speech. And that's the other problem. Everybody saying how, you know, chronic pain patients benefit from these drugs without having any studies to show that. And now it's coming out that chronic pain patients are not benefiting from long-term overexposure use. And, and see, it's another, another, Another piece of misinformation that was brought forward during those opioid years that are now being, you know. Debunked. Yeah. As Mr. Renazizi points out next, policing the marketing practices of the pharmaceutical companies is the FDA's responsibility. The FDA has tools at their disposal to, to control marketing of products. They have tools at their disposal to control, you know, surveillance of, their pro of those products uh, and to make sure that uh, things like what's happening don't occur. Uh, if, if, they're, if the tools that they have are not adequate, then Congress needs to step in and strengthen those tools. Um, if, if they're adequate, but they're just not enforcing the law, well, then shame on them, and they need to, that needs to be addressed as well. But the companies should not have free reign 
to do whatever they want to do with their product like that. And uh, so this is something that needs to be addressed by Congress. They need to look at what tools FDA has, because only FDA could control how these drugs are being marketed. That's, that's their, that's their area of responsibility under the law. It's not DEA's area of responsibility. So, they need to, to look at how these drugs are being marketed, uh, what kind of post-marketing surveillance there is. And, and then if they need additional tools, additional enforcement authority, then they need to get it. Congress needs to give it to them. Uh, but uh, in the end, uh, everything, everything appears to, to hinge on what Congress will do and what it won't do. So uh, I think that that's the, that's, that's the limiting factor. How far Congress will go to allowing a federal agency to enforce the law and what tools they will give them to enforce that law. What final comments would you have for our listeners? This, this horrible American tragedy has spiraled out of control. And, you know, we need to, to, we need to better educate our kids because it's our kids that are that are, are going to to feel the pain of this for many many years to come. Um, if I could leave you with anything else, and this is what I tell parents and, and loved ones when I go talk to them, is that you've got you've got to better educate our kids on what's going on. This is this is the deadliest drug epidemic that this country has ever seen, and it doesn't appear to be decreasing at all. Make sure you take a, a, a role in what your doctor is doing for your children and your young adults. Question why they, they, they're prescribing a certain drug for pain. Question why they're doing something. Question why they're not trying to treat the underlying cause. You know, it's okay to question physicians, especially if you're a parent and it's your child. This concludes our four-part series with former head of the Office of Diversion Control for the DEA, Mr. Joe Renzizi. So what have we learned? What surprised me most in this series is congressmen or high-ranking government agency officials could play a key role in deciding the fate of a drug policy or law and weeks later go to work for the pharmaceutical industry, leaving open the possibility of impropriety. Twenty-four years ago, the medical director for the FDA played a key role in approving OxyContin without clinical trials. And shortly thereafter, he left to go to work for Purdue Pharma. Twelve years ago, a member of Congress led an all-night effort to pass legislation that prohibits the government from negotiating lower Medicaid drug prices. As a result of the bill, in this country, an EpiPen, for example, costs $608, while in Britain, where they can negotiate drug prices with the manufacturers, they pay just $70. The congressman who led the passage of the bill became a leading lobbyist for the pharmaceutical industry a short time after the passage of this bill. And three years ago, the final version of a bill whose passage effectively removed the DEA's most effective tool to control opioid dumping was shaped in large part by a former DEA lawyer the measure made it virtually impossible for the government to freeze suspicious drug shipments from pharmaceutical companies. 
In the private sector, non-compete contracts are routinely used to protect against conflict of interest. With former government officials at or near the heart of so many rulings favoring the pharmaceutical industry over the last 25 years, isn't it time for lawmakers to examine conflicts of interest and redefine the ground rules under which congressmen and government agency officials can transition to the private sector? I'd like to thank Mr. Joe Renazizi, who generously gave of his time to make this series possible. I'd also like to offer my thanks to Eric Iyer, who's the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist from the Charleston Gazette-Mail, Pat Beal, the award-winning investigative journalist from the Palm Beach Post, and Chris McGreal, the investigative journalist for The Guardian and the author of American Overdose. I'd like to thank all of them for providing the guest journalist commentary for this series. My name is Greg McNeil. Thank you for listening to this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.